BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are, this is, I think this is our fourth episode doing the show remote, but it's it's the fifth week since we have been working remote as an organization. And so, uh, and now I know it's, it, it's, it's a funny thing because everybody who is listening to this podcast, well, certainly I guess I would say this, you know, maybe you're listening five years from now and, and, and this is all history and everything, but everybody who's listening to this podcast right now is in a similar situation in some sense to us. Maybe you are social distancing at home, maybe you're an essential worker, so your your life is, the schedule of your life is somewhat similar, but, but uh, more stressful and arduous and dangerous. But we're all kind of in the same boat, so we're all we're all experiencing it in our own specific way. But that's one of the one of the things about this crisis that I mean, I was thinking a few days ago. Again, we all have crises, disasters, things that we have lived through, and one of the things about living through one of those one of those upheavals is that you can relate it to other people later, you know, and sometimes it's like, oh, I was there. Let me tell you about what happened. And one of the things about the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is that there's not really going to be that. Now, obviously, some people will have very unique experiences, people who, healthcare workers working in hospitals, people who became very ill, all these different kind of things. But we all experience this. This isn't like, oh, I remember Hurricane Sandy. Let me tell you about mm-hmm. how it happened, or let me. Or where were you on nine eleven or, or something? Yeah, exactly. Like, where were you in the COVID? Like, well, I was right where it happened. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a it's a funny thing. So uh, before I uh, introduce my co-host, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can order it at gradyscoldbrew.com where you can use the promotion code TPM to get 20% off your first order or you can order it from Amazon if you want a speedier delivery. Although nowadays, you know, when you say Amazon, I'm sure I'm sure many people have seen this that unless you are ordering something that is a sort of an essential good, it has that thing that says up to three weeks. Right. Uh, so who knows which way you can get your Grady's cold brew uh, faster, but uh, it is great coffee. It comes in a bunch of different, you can buy, you know, you can buy it in liquid form. You can buy what they call, you know, bean bags, which is you brew it yourself at home. It's great when we, when, when in the, in the before times, when we worked from a physical office, the, the, the TPM offices in New York and DC were powered by Grady's cold brew iced coffee. And, and long before they became a sponsor of, of this podcast, 
I was already addicted to to Grady's cold brew. So it's great stuff. And I remind you that uh, one reason to uh, order some Grady's is to support a an independent business, which is important. But Grady's is not the only one. They're the sponsor, but there are independent slash small businesses around the country. And what we have been rem- trying to remind everybody in every episode of the remote version of the Josh Marshall podcast is be sure to patronize companies that it is important to you are going to be there when this is all over because every certainly companies that are in you know food and beverages and stuff like that are particularly hard hit so find ways to support small independent businesses that are important to you that you care about being there when this is all over so uh, uh david tainter and kate riga we are we are joining this is our, our, our fourth time joining remotely. What's up? <laughs> Josh, it's, uh you your intro reminded me of something just talking about how we've all kind of been experiencing the the coronavirus simultaneously in our in our own homes and own parts of the country. But um something that's been happening in New York City every night at seven PM is people come out on their balconies or in their on their stoops or out their windows and clap for healthcare workers and essential workers and this is something that started in in Europe places like Paris and then London and and Spain and other kind of hot spots um but it's it started to get louder in the in the New York City area at least in my neighborhood in Brooklyn and there was kind of a sweet moment last night where this old old lady who lives across the street from me and has been participating every night and clapping and cheering, uh, blew a kiss to a city bus driver who was passing by and the bus kind of just like honked like crazy down the block and everyone was kind of applauding it. So kind of a sweet moment. And one of those, one of those images, I think that'll stay in my head a little bit, you know, as, um, when we're maybe looking back on this, just a nice thing of people kind of coming together or just clapping and cheering for people who are out there on kind of the front lines making sure people can get around the city when they, you know, need to, or obviously the healthcare workers who are trying to keep people safe and healthy. So anyways, I just thought that was kind of a nice little, nice little moment. That is nice. So there's been a bunch of kind of news developments overnight over the last couple of days uh, that sort of su- helped sum up the Trump presidency. I think last night, the Washington Post reported that, um, Donald Trump's signature, or not a signature, I guess his name will be stamped on the on the stimulus checks that will go out to millions of Americans. These are the actual physical checks that get mailed to people who don't necessarily have kind of direct deposit information um, on file with the IRS. I think, you know, obviously the majority of these stimulus payments will be just deposited into bank accounts, but the Washington Post story mentioned something like 70 million physical paper checks will go out. Um, and Josh, I think I saw you retweet someone last night who was pointing out that uh, Trump's name being added to these checks might actually delay some of their uh, payments and that that kind of totally perfectly sums up the Trump presidency in one sentence. Um, he's not a, a legal, I guess, like signatory on these checks, so he can't be the one who's actually signing them. It's just a little Trump 
label that goes in the corner of it basically yeah, a little, little branding basically <laughs> or i guess they're probably putting it in there's that you know memo the memo, thing. The memo yeah. section on, yeah. on a on a check that is just sort of like for you know a little informational flourish i think those things usually go out from the treasurer of the united states is the is yeah the i think actual. a treasury official is um someone who wasn't a isn't a household name it's not steve mnuchin but um someone, well, i think it's actually there is a treasurer of the right. united states which is which is a I, I guess it's within the Treasury Department, but it's 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 sort of um, it's like a little separate. I, I can't remember exactly how yeah. it works, but like that's uh, I, I think that's I think that's who you know who who right right. Anyways, uh, probably goes without saying that that uh, development has not been widely uh, re- has not been received well, basically online. Um, also, last night. During the one of these marathon press briefings that we've come to see every night with Trump, uh, he announced that the U.S. is is freezing funding for the World Health Organization. This has kind of been a a diversion tactic of Trump's to, I guess, kind of shirk responsibility for his own response to the coronavirus and and put it on the World Health Organization, talking about how it's too China centric or, uh, you know, how it kind of dropped the ball despite Trump talking for a month or six weeks about how it was a democratic hoax or the media was was amping it up and and so on any other kind of big updates josh or kate that you have seen that our listeners should be aware of as we're kind of trying to make sense of the whole kind of you know ongoing overwhelming story no i just wanted to just to quickly put a bow on those two things is that you know how could you have any more juxtaposition of things that is more emblematic of Trump's handling of this, which is, you know, trying to shirk the responsibility for his like dreadful neglect of this issue onto another organization with like, a you know, a big scoop of uh, xenophobia in there. And then at the same time saying, wanting his name stamped on the checks, you know, these are from me, kind of in the same vein as when all those, um, mailers went out with cdc guidance about how to distance yourself that you know said stamped on it you know president trump's guidance um right his guidelines right exactly so i mean not that it's a particularly fresh observation at that at this point but it's just so classic trumpian wanting to take advantage of the parts of this that people will be pleased about whether or not he had any kind of direct hand in bringing that about while you know washing his hands of any other kind of responsibility. That's the only hand washing he's focused on during this whole crisis. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. <laughs> I think it I think it was about exactly a month ago that Trump said he takes no responsibility for the spread of the coronavirus, right? Mm. So now he is trying to take some got immediately folded into some Biden campaign ads. <laughs> right. You know, one of the one of the things that we have been focusing on as an organization and I've written a few things about it and one of our colleagues, Josh Kovensky has has been following closely is this question of excess mortality and that is that during a crisis like this you have the numbers that we have all seen which are you know the death toll this many people died of coronavirus today um one of the things that has not been that clear to a lot of people is that those numbers are in almost every case people who were who had a lab test that they tested positive for coronavirus and then they died now we know given the issues with testing that a lot of people 
get the illness and a, a significant number of them die without ever having been tested. So in a lot of cases, you have someone who the doctor who was attending them probably knows that they had coronavirus. So it's not like a secret and it's not like anybody's hiding anything, but they don't get included if there is not a test. Okay. So that is one of several reasons. And then you have other people who die and people didn't know they had coronavirus, but they died of coronavirus. And then you have yet another group of people who died because in some sense, the crisis itself led to their death, even though the the COVID-19 virus did not kill them or even infect them. And so one of the things, and again, we have done a lot of this on the site, but it's it's one way you've probably heard of that about this in the past is after the uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, where they did the similar kind of studies. And basically what it is, you take, you say like, you know, the month of March in New York City, on average over the last decade, X number of people die in the month of March. And it's pretty consistent o- over time. And so then you look at, okay, how many people died in March 2020? And if you look, obviously, again, it's an average, so it's going to wobble around a little bit. But we are seeing dramatically higher numbers and dramatically higher numbers even after you subtract the sort of official COVID-19 death toll. And so that starts to give you a better understanding of the true impact of this crisis. And we've seen some sort of some some data about this from Italy, from some towns in Italy, some other places in Spain. And then yesterday, New York City released new data and they released three three pieces of data. One was an update of the official death toll, which is people who had a lab confirmed COVID-19 test and died. Then they released, and this was what most people focused on, they released another number which was people who had a suspected diagnosis, that, that the doctor diagnosed them as, as having COVID-19, but there was no test, so it wasn't official. And then they released a, another number, which was the total number of people who died in New York City over, I believe it was March 11th through April 13th. And the gist of all of this was that over that period of time, the number of people who die in New York City is about 5,000 people. And this goes back six or seven years. That's the average. This year, 18,000 people died. And the number of the sort of the official death toll up until now had been about 6,500 people died in the city from coronavirus. So as you can see, if you just do the math, it's really 13,000 more people have died from coronavirus. So you take that COVID-19 death toll and you double it. And that is the, the, the true impact of this crisis that we've been going through. Now, if you take, so again, we have about 6,500 people. That's the official total, the lab confirmed total. And what I just described to you is that the number, the full death toll is about twice that. So you take that additional 6,500 people, 
um, roughly half of that number are people who they've put in that presumed category. And then you've got another 3,000 or so people who they, they think were not victims of COVID-19, but still 3,000 more people than would have normally died. And um, so there's a few different things going on here. We can see that, that the true impact of this crisis is dramatically greater. We know there's those, you know, presumed diagnoses. And then we have this, this again, this additional 3,000 people. And Josh Kovensky wrote an article about this yesterday where he sort of went through all the math that explains what I'm sort of uh, describing for you in broad strokes. That number, presumably, some significant number of those people actually did have COVID-19 and and they didn't present in such a way or the doctor wasn't there when they died or something like that. But there, there must also be a significant number of people who the, the standard of hospital care in the city has, has gone down. I mean, that's just obvious. If you, if, if, if you start having chest pains in New York City right now and you get taken to an emergency room, there's no way you are going to get the level of attention that you normally would. And that's not criticizing anybody. That is just the, that's obvious. The focus, there's going to be a lot of additional um, attention given to the doctors not infecting you, you not infecting the doctors. It's clear there are also people who are not seeking medical care when they should. You know, maybe you have, we actually uh, heard from one reader who related a case of a, a middle-aged or, you know, maybe slightly older than middle-aged man uh, started having kind of, you know, some sort of shortness of breath, some chest pains, the kind of thing that normally you'd say, oh, I'm going to go to the emergency room, I'm going to call my doctor. Didn't do that. Next day he died. And, and again, this is, I mentioned before that you may be familiar about this from Hurricane Maria, where I think the official death toll was something like 60 people or something like that. Right. And, that's, and that is, you know, sort of the day of this person drowned and they brought to the emergency room. You don't drown on a normal day in your house. And so that's obviously Hurricane Maria. And, but what they did was they looked at, again, the same basic things, all-cause mortality over a period of time, compare it, to the, compare it to earlier years, and you see that it's just vastly greater. And that is, um, we are going to see over time what this true toll is. But I did a, I did a post last night where I looked at the examples that we've seen at first, you know, this this New York City data, but also these kind of small little analyses from, from Italy and Spain. And the baseline, I think we can see, is that it seems to be a pattern that if you take the official death toll, official early death toll from COVID-19 epidemics in different parts of the world, it's a decent baseline that the true impact, the true death toll of the crisis will be at least twice as big. And that is, you know, so many, so many numbers that are, we can't really believe we're seeing them constantly that you lose, you know, there's a, there's a 
it, it's just kind of human nature. You get hit with all these numbers. You, they start seeming meaningless or just numbers. But obviously the difference between 6,500 people dying and 13,000 people dying is unimaginable. And, and th this is what we are, th these are things we are starting to understand as these, as these new statistics come online. Yeah, it's really, it is hard to wrap your head around. You know, I think yesterday that the revised death toll in New York City was around 10,000. Like you say, Josh, it's probably more likely around 13,000. I mean, yeah, these are family members, uh, you know, children, sisters, all that. It's when you, ha when you hear those numbers in the abstract, it is really hard to get your head around it. I mean, I think... In a lot of ways, the baseline for tragedy in the United States has been 9-11, right? Around 3,000 people um, killed in, on that day. And, you know, we're three times, you know, more than three times that, four times that now, basically. Um, it's sort of like, yeah, it blurs together in a weird way. It's just hard to, it's really hard to get your mind around it, for sure. Yeah, and I, I think it, it, I think that's right for our our generation in modern American history. That's the sort of the analog. And just to an example, I think that the nationwide, the number yesterday was almost 2,400. So the, the number just yesterday in the United States was fairly close to the total toll of 9-11. Of, of and again, it's sort of, I th it, it, it's kind of just human nature. You, 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 you can't really imagine numbers that big, let alone the fact that 30,000 people have, these are, again, it's not just a matter of getting numb to, you almost sort of like ascribe feelings to it because you know, we know how unimaginable it is when one person dies. And, and so we kind of know like, wow, that happening 30,000 times is, is beyond comprehension. But again, it's almost like you sort of ascribe it to it because you know it must be the case. But there's no real way to experience that or it's, it, it kind of becomes a number at a certain point. Yeah. And so amid these staggering numbers, we still have this debate about when is the time to reopen the country. And Trump has pinpointed May 1st basically as as the, the date he wants to get things back up and running. And he, at one point, I think on, I guess it was Monday night, he said, you know, when you're the president, you have total authority to tell the states what to do. Obviously, that's not true. Governors across the country are saying, we'll make our own decisions. And all of the state home orders and shelter in place and different kind of mitigation efforts and restrictions have all come from cities and states and local local, you know, politicians and lawmakers, and Trump doesn't really have any say in, in what they do. He can't tell New York, for instance, time to open up the restaurants again and pack the bars and all that kind of stuff. But how do you both sort of see, how do you see us moving forward, you know, as we get into the later spring, the early summer, and so on? Um, you know, it seems like obviously we're not going to be able to flip a switch and go back to normal. It will probably be a, a more gradual Thing, but even on the West Coast, Oregon, California, Washington are kind of banding together saying we should do a regional kind of plan to get to sort of reopen parts of the economy. On the East Coast, 
think it's New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Delaware, kind of doing a similar thing. Um, I think I Massachusetts know, just, joined too, didn't it? They were yeah, kind of a late, right. late joiner. Yeah. So obviously it's, it's on everyone's mind to a certain extent. I'm just curious how you sort of see the early steps of that unfolding. Well, one thing that particularly worries me is that Trump's whole we want to open up the economy as soon as possible. I'm worried about that becoming a political stance and that Trumpy governors are going to be like, yeah, we got to get it up and running and then, you know, not stray from that because that would be seen as disloyalty to the president when what you have on the line is obviously, you know, people's health. Because if, if you look at even what's happening with the governor of um, South Care- or, uh, South Dakota right now, she has refused to issue a stay-at-home order, um, has been, you know, in that way, kind of like downplaying the severity of this, saying people can be trusted to make their own decisions. Meanwhile, there's a, it's become a massive outbreak there, um, and especially in Sioux City, where the mayor has been begging her to issue a stay-at-home order or to um, set up like an isolation camp, you know, and she is refusing. And it's kind of in line with, you know, another story that we've been covering, the, you know, Jerry Falwell opening up Liberty University thing, you know, downplaying the crisis because to adequately capture the crisis would be in some way a criticism, you know, an implicit criticism of how Trump and the federal government have handled this response. So your only other way is to say liberals and the media are making hay out of this. Not a big deal. Trump's got it in hand. We're going to be opened up by May, no matter the human cost that that takes. It is funny how this is another... Clearly, Trump has handled this very poorly. So as things get bad, he kind of... A lot of the blame goes goes to him. And that's just... That's just right. That's reality. But it's another example of his need to personalize everything. His need to personalize everything so intensely leads to stuff like this. Because really, we're in the midst of an epidemic. And he has handled it terribly. But like... It's it's pretty bad in every. I mean, there's 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 this kind of basic difference between East Asia and Europe and North America, and some of that is because they had the experience of SARS and blah 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 blah. But Trump's best defense is, hey, they're not they're not doing great in France, or they're not doing great in Italy or the UK, and even Germany where they're doing relatively well, it still sucks, right? But his need to make it about him. It means that every, everything becomes, as you said, gay loyalty to Trump. And and the thing is with, you know, this thing in North Dakota, wait, South yeah, Dakota, South right? Dakota, South yeah. Dakota. Um, that the worst part about this, this personalization of it, um, is that if 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 governors go out and, and, you know, if Trump loyalty is defined as like opening everything up really quickly, it's not even going to be a question of, you know, health versus economy, because you have another outbreak, believe me, you are going to close right back down again. So it's really, it's, it, it's not even like an either or where you can say like, well, a bunch of people died, but we're kind of killing it on, on, uh, you know, uh, GDP or something like that, because you will close right back down again. So really you get the worst of both worlds. Um, and, and in, in some ways, 
maintaining everything semi-locked down is better than going back and forth because that's just more disruption. You, you lose whatever sense of new normal you had. Um, the, the other point I, I was thinking about is that uh, th- this thing with these, these regional state compacts, some of that makes sense, and you probably would have so- something like that even under a normal president because there are certain things like in the in the greater new york city area where you have what is in effect one unit that is governed by three separate governments you want to you know you don't want to have bars in one place and not in the others there's some logic in coordinating but really these things are happening because there is just an absence at the federal level and 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 so you have i wouldn't say it's a a a breakdown of federal control exactly, but it's pretty significant. You you have states reacting to the abdication of the federal government and kind of building the rudiments of, of regional governments, which is, you know, federal union's been around for a pretty long time. It's going on 250 years. It's not gonna, it's not gonna fade away quickly with, with one president, but this stuff is pretty weird. And, and, it's 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 a real problem. I mean, it's better to do it than not to do it when 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 the president is is AWOL. But um, it is something very different in our history, and it's it's not a good different. It's bad, even though it is it's the best approach under these circumstances. Well, and I think it's kind of funny because you can almost see that from these you know kind of half-hearted attempts to draft Cuomo into the presidency and everything, because to Americans the president is, that is who we see as a leader, you know, in a time of crisis, a person you look to, um, who's imbued with all this authority. And so it's like, we don't even have another model to be, you know, Cuomo is, you know, this great governor, it it can't stop there, you know, it has to be, he's our great kind of pseudo president right now, because there's nobody else who, you know, fits that role. And I think what you're saying, Josh, is exactly right. And it's just striking how, strange it is to have such a void at the top of the government during something like this. Because it's just, if you think about how typically it's been when we've had crises, and of course we've, you know, crises that aren't like this, but even if you, like to 9-11, you know, everyone rallied around George Bush and trusted him, at least in that moment, I mean, enough to get into a war. But even aside from that, it's just, that's our usual model, you know, disaster strikes, you rally around the president, you put your partisan divides aside, they give rousing speeches about American resilience, you know, and instead we have these, I don't know, these daily press briefings where he's just clearly enjoying himself and sparring with the reporters and I don't know. I mean, I guess we're used to it now after almost four years of it, but it is just still so profoundly odd that this is where we're at. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the I'm not the first one who's made this comparison, but obviously he's not, Trump is no longer on the campaign trail. So these nightly briefings are his chance to get in front of cameras and air his grievances for a couple hours. And, you know, uh, the White House reporters, I think, are, you know, it's good to hear from the president, I guess. It's not that useful or informative necessarily. But, um, you know, if the president gets up in front of cameras and holds a briefing, you can bet networks are going to, you know, people are going to cover it. Um, it's just, yeah, he gets into well, these rants yeah. and, and tangents. 
I also, it's just a thought that, that occurred to me that I've been thinking about is that these combative press briefings, I think, are just so bad for both sides because then it gives network it gives pieces like cnn incentive to have you know we have journalists who like will take trump to the mat you know and so then it just both sides are kind of playing into the spectacle and not that these journalists shouldn't be saying you know you got to answer the question i mean of course they should but he's not going to and he doesn't know anything and then it's just you're, this press briefing which is supposed to be giving americans medical advice and guidance turns into you know Jim Acosta got down and dirty with President Trump, which is just like, oh, great. That's definitely good for the democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in a normal world, Josh, maybe you could speak to this, having just more, you know, experience covering different presidents. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to say it. Um, That's all right, man. (laughs) But, um, you know, in a normal world, the president wouldn't even be the one standing up there, right? It would be people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, the health, you know, health experts, public health experts who would be giving actual information, actionable information for people. Yes, you should be wearing a mask when you're in the grocery store or, you know, we're keeping these social distance guidelines going for another 30 days or, or so on. It wouldn't be Trump kind of making it all about him as he does every night. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, you know, there's obviously no normal for this, but to the extent that we can we can think of analogs, I think the norm would be you have the people who have the relevant, you know, experience, Nat, you know, Hurricane, FEMA director, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of military crisis, you have, you know, kind of briefings at the Pentagon, and you'd have the president speak sometimes because at some level you just want to hear from the president sometimes you know to kind of get the the overarching view and show he's on top of things and stuff like that and and politics are never totally separated from these things uh but yeah you, you don't have especially in a case like this where you're talking about a lot of this is something that is very technical and scientific and and the average president just not doesn't really know a lot about it uh, I, I would say that it does, uh, I would say that maybe until a week ago or something like that, they were getting better in the sense that, yeah, still a lot of Trump stuff and blah, 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 blah. But a lot of it is, is you know, Fauci or Deborah Burks or, uh, you know, Mike Pence, which for all my, you know, negativity about Mike Pence has, you know, basically done the sort of the normal blocking and tackling you'd expect of a president in in, in, in these cases. But over the last several days, it's, it's, it's swung back dramatically towards not just being all Trump, but being all Trump just kind of ranting and, and just ranting basically even last last night for example i don't think burks or fauci or any public health experts were even at the podium it was just an hour of trump basically complaining about things you know freezing the world health organization funding and then this was held in the rose garden so the sun started to set and then he had to (laughs) get out of there um so it lasted about an hour but yeah well and i guess the day before it was the only thing you had from fauci is that sort of like self-criticism session where he's sort of his you mild know, ray thing at the beginning of the yeah it, it, exactly and and it is it is um, some of this we've just we've become used to this is who Trump is it's not surprising but but frequently I find myself falling you know kind of 
stepping back and thinking how weird this is. Like, dude, it's not about you, you know? And, and, and he has at some level made it about himself to a degree by just how poorly he's managed it. But he's up there talking about, you know, the press and, and this person and that person. And at a certain level, the president has to step back and said, hey, even though I'm really taking a beating here, like, it's really not about me. There's thousands of people dying every day in the United States. And this is like a a a terrible thing. And just his, at, at, it sounds like such a mundane word that does not capture the totality of him, but just his selfishness and self-centeredness. And to, you know, to the, to the, uh, to the, to the point Kate was making just it, it's all about him. And he does force all of us into this negative space where we are kind of forced to agree at some level or act in some way like it's all about him because he's making it all about him and and the president has so much power and so much force of gravity that at some level he can make it all about himself because if he's up there saying things you know cuz when he has these these rants and speeches He's not just blaming other people. He's also saying a lot of things that are just manifestly false. So reporters do have to press him on things and sort of say, no, that's not true, or ask him things that will make him defensive and angry. And that is just one of those things where, again, the president has a tremendous gravitational force around him because of his power, because of the the position he has in our system. And um, there's there's no avoiding that. And even, you know, I think everybody knows that there's been this push now, the network shouldn't, you know, cover these briefings. And it's a tough question. I agree with that to a certain extent. And I think there is a different calculus for the big national news organizations versus more niche news organizations like TPM, because our audience knows what he's saying is not true. We're not, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's different. And you don't want to give too much attention to certain things. But at a very real level, it is important to know the crazy things the president is doing. Not, not because you want to kind of, you know, amplify his propaganda. But we also, it is a significant news reality that while this national crisis is unfolding, the, the president's main focus is ranting at his political enemies and making up stories that aren't true. That's real. That's a fact. It, you can't, you know, ignoring that fact does not make it go away. Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right. Well, maybe with the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so that we have, I wanted to turn our attention back to the election in Wisconsin, which we've uh, been updating our listeners and readers on over the last few days. And Kate, you've been reporting on on the various races there. Uh, just to remind our readers, in case you haven't seen it, the one of the most indelible images of the entire coronavirus crisis is the uh, Republican Speaker of the State Assembly in Wisconsin, 
basically in a full hazmat suit telling people totally safe to go out and vote. <laughs> so go out and do it. Um, but now we actually have results, right? So the election was um, last week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't actually have any results released until, I guess, Monday evening of this week. And there were some surprises. So, Kate, kind of run us through a little bit of, of what happened and what some of the implications are. Right. So this was a presidential primary, but, um, you know, kind of... And the election did happen before... Bernie Sanders dropped out, but, you know, not a lot of suspense there, Biden won handily. But really the marquee race of that night was um, a state Supreme Court seat that would have been a 10-year term. It was a Republican incumbent being challenged by a liberal. Um, And Democrats who had been mad about the GOP's pretty extensive efforts to keep the in-person voting Last week, uh, the governor initially took that side as well, but he also he flipped over to the Democrats who were really pushing to delay it or at least um, significantly expand absentee voting. Republicans shut that down both legislatively and through majorities on the courts. Um, And so the big theory there was that was to try to keep the state Supreme Court for the Republican incumbent on the belief that a lower turnout would help the Republican. Um, and at the end of the night, the liberal won, um, Jill Karofsky, I think you pronounce it, but she, so she toppled him, you know, Democrats were exuberant, there was all kinds of takes of, what does this mean for November, you know, is this, uh, should this be a balm to people who are concerned that if the pandemic is still raging by then, or if there's a resurgence, that Republicans will attempt similar repressive efforts um, to kind of quash democratic turnout and that now this isn't that's not a concern anymore and you know things like that and I talked to some pollsters and they had a bit of a more sobering take that in a year put aside the pandemic in a year where there's a competitive primary for one party and not the other you're going to have increased turnout for that party and not the other and so this year you know, you can debate whether it was competitive at this point, but the Republican primary was certainly not at all competitive. So you already had kind of an edge in Democrats who were going to vote in this election. Um, And then combined with that, you have a trend that was already happening that these state Supreme Court seats were getting more partisan, that the elections were getting more intense, that turnout was higher for them. I think as people have kind of come to realize how powerful these state courts are and how, you know, we've very much drifted away from a model where most judges are, you know, pretty nonpartisan. Um, so anyway, there were, those factors were definitely involved and we still are looking at a gap of absentee ballots sent versus those that were returned of around 200,000, which percentage wise is not very far off from the number that Wisconsin usually sees not returned. But the difference is almost 1.1 million absentee ballots uh, were cast this time, which dwarfs what the state has ever seen before. It actually eclipses the total number of people who voted in person and by mail in the 2016 Democratic primary. So even if percentage-wise it holds steady, you know, that's a lot of ballots that we're talking about. Um, And since we don't have official tallies yet, it's not clear if that gap is just due to usual reasons, like voters don't fill them out and return them, things get lost in the mail, or some of the other issues that you saw kind of swirling around this before Election Day that Democrats were crying disenfranchisement about, 
um, that Supreme Court made a ruling about postmarks. It wasn't clear. People didn't know which postmarks to count and which That was the U.S. To. Supreme Court, right? Right, right, right. right. Um, so you had that issue. You had, the, apparently there are reports of voters who didn't get their ballots at all. So we're still kind of waiting to see if those issues are going to play out. Um, some lawsuits are anticipated on that front, um, whether it be about absentee ballots or for people who were just felt they were disenfranchised you know, in total, because the way that this election was conducted. Um, Kate, is there, is there, has there been any information or analyses of these results that gets at whether some of this was that older voters, particularly, you know, older voters in rural areas were afraid to come out to vote because of their health? That is not a topic that has been brought up to me, but we also don't have the official demographic breakdowns yet. So I think that'll become more clear. Um, but the one lawsuit that was lodged while we were waiting for results to be counted was a class action um, by a bunch of voters who said, who are either old or have underlying health conditions and said they were disenfranchised. Um, the way this was carried out and the last minute absentee ballot court rulings meant that they couldn't get a ballot in time. Uh, not to mention that in Wisconsin, you're required to have a witness signature on your absentee ballot, which, of course, the current pandemic makes much more difficult to obtain. Because I, 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 I want to say that, you know, it, at some level sort of just deserts what happened here for the GOP. They did something really unconscionable and, it, and, and they failed in what they were trying. Because I think everybody agrees that was, as you said, that was the, the goal here. They thought a low turnout election would, 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 would do the trick for them. But we have to remember, whoever got hurt by it, you just should not be placed in a position, no one should be placed in a position of having to balance whether they're going to get a deadly disease because they, they wanted to exercise their right to vote. And, and that was what was always kind of weird to me about this, that there's, um, there's the basic issue, this tends to be hitting cities more than at least at first, more than outlying areas. That's kind of how epidemics tend to work, at least at first. The cities are where Democrats are concentrated. But it's hard to miss the fact that older voters, voters over 60, particularly over 65, are, I'm not sure, overwhelmingly Republican now, but strongly Republican. And those, a lot of those people would be crazy to go to to go out and 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 go go to a precinct given their given their risks. So. I when when this was happening, I sort of took it for granted that okay, the Republicans must know what they're doing here. I mean, funny thing to say that, but you know, must know what they're doing here. Everybody kind of must understand this a little better than I did. But kind of like, do you really want the party, which is disproportionately the party of old people, you're going to push for an in-person election because like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me just in terms of protecting people, but. As much as you see a lot of, you know, sort of middle-aged or older, you know, Trump guys, you know, pushing for their freedom to sort of, you know, not social distance, people, people's attention tends to be, fo- you know, be focused when you're talking about their own health. So it's hard for me to imagine this didn't have some impact, even though it might, you know, might end up being hard to disaggregate the exact, you know, the exact... Uh, Rolled. Were there here's something I hadn't thought about? Were there exit polls? Not that I saw. I don't think I mean, so. I'm that, was, that was the same in um, 
like the Illinois elections mm-hmm. and some of the other states that went first. I think there might have been an online something. I can't remember. But you exactly, can't do but... the in-person stuff that you right. usually do for an exit poll. Well, because at some level, you know, some of these elections are sort of too, or, you know, kind of too small. They're not going to kind of put, you know, because it takes a lot of resources, money to do exit polls. So they're not done in every case. But I wonder if you have this sort of the irony of, you know, the the exit poll is like, dude, it's too dangerous. We're not not sending anybody out to do to do an exit poll because of the health risk when you have all these, you know, I mean, you saw that all over the place, though, when the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled not to delay the in-person election, they made that decision remotely because they weren't coming in. So, I mean, (laughs) oh, wasn't there? I I thought I saw some some uh, news report that that all of the justices voted by absentee. None of them voted in person, which isn't like. You know, I I still it's still um, it's still really shocking to me that that actually happened. That was such a bizarre, awful thing. And again, it's sort of like, you know, it's karma, all that kind of stuff. But whoever hurt, it's just wrong. It's just wrong that 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 anybody or any disproportionately affected group should have to make that. Uh, you know, have to do that calculus about their own health, especially when, like, it would be it would be one thing. Looking forward to November, it would be one thing if there were no other way to hold an election, and the question is sort of like, take the health risk, or just sort of suspend our democratic system of government. That's tough, but it's not that. You've lots of other ways to do it, um, and in this case with with Wisconsin, yeah, you're not gonna. There's no way to get like an, a, a mail-in voting system up and running in in time for that. But you can just delay it. It's not. It's it's certainly not good. There's all sorts of bad things if the if the government delays an election. But you yeah, know, I think it's doable. Other states have already done it. Yeah, seeing videos of people in the Milwaukee area, which is home to some like 600,000 people, and there were only about five polling places, waiting in the rain for multiple hours, you know, in these, you know, attempting to social distance, just depressing images. I mean, in Milwaukee, they cut the polls from 180 to five. I mean, that is just staggeringly irresponsible. And, you know, if you're not going to push back the election, then don't curtail people's ability to vote absentee, which is what, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court did. The lower court had said that any a ballot that was received up till the 13th should be counted because obviously this flurry of last minute legal maneuvering could throw people off. Uh, Supreme Court said, no, it's got to be postmarked by the 7th, which is how we got this whole postmark issue. And then, you know, I listened in on a Wisconsin Elections Commission call, which has three Democrats and three Republicans on it. And all the Republicans uniformly pushing for the narrowest possible definition of an acceptable ballot. Um, you know, one commissioner was even saying people waited till the last minute to vote. You know, that's not our fault. So the tenor it, is just pretty shocking. <laughs> it, it is. It's it's so cynical and so transparent and so awful. And I, I have to say, you know, I see these lines and it, it is both awful and inspiring but what's inspiring about it is because something awful happened and something needless happened. And I have to say to myself, like, I feel bad saying this, but like, it, you know, Democratic primary is over. You know, whatever. You know, it's kind of, it's done. And states, like, would I have, 
like gone out and 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 commingled with lots of people for a relatively you know a relatively minor election this isn't the, the gen, you know presidential general election it's not a congressional election like it's it's it is inspiring to me that so many people turned out I mean that says a lot, and it's 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 a I have conflicting emotions because it's inspiring, but inspiring that shouldn't had it, there should have been no need for anybody to have to do anything inspiring. It's just it it's so bad. It's 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 you know a lot of bad things are happening right now. I mean a lot of bad things that are just you know viral mother nature things that are just no one had any control over. Some bad things that are happening because of irresponsibility, people didn't do things they should have done, but it's hard for me to think of anything that was such a concentrated act of cynicism and brazenness and and recklessness, because again, no reason this had to happen. Republicans have done pretty well, unfortunately, in these Supreme Court elections in recent years. So... It's not even like they had to sort of minorly disadvantage themselves. Again, it's few things during this awful time just seem so needless and so cynical and so reckless. It just, it, I, I'm still upset that it happened, even though, you know, perversely, it ended up kind of injuring the, the, the bad actors. Yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. All right. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. That's my cue to, to, <laughs> to remember what we're talking about here. Remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. They're at Grady'sColdBrew.com. If you are just wanting to try it out for the first time, you can use the promo code TPM and get 20% off your first order. It's a great company. They're still up and running in the Bronx in New York, right at the at the at the center of the awfulness uh, up and running because they're an essential service creating, uh, uh, you know, food and beverages. So uh, give it a try. It's really, really great stuff. I mean, it, for, for me, I can't, it's hard for me to drink any other kind of coffee now. And remember, as we've been saying, support independent small businesses. Uh, it, this isn't just a matter of, of you know, kind of charity. It's a matter of, of of really doing something that will help preserve the world, something like as we knew it when this is all over. Because I can tell you as someone who uh, runs a small business, TPM, these are, are harrowing, dangerous, dangerous times for independent companies that don't have big corporations to fall back on. Uh, I think we are cautiously optimistic about ourselves because just sort of particularities about um, – we deliver stuff that is virtual. We can do our work remotely, and and we're you know we're not we're not as I've described on the site we're not nearly as dependent on advertising as we used to be, but just kind of understanding the dynamics gives me a real palpable sense of of the the very very hard time that small independent businesses are having right now, and that's particularly for again restaurants, food providers ones that are just directly hit by the fact that people can't come together right now. So so think about that. Uh, obviously, follow what is safe in your area, but think of ways that you can you can support these these operations because it's important and not just important in a in an altruistic sense. It's important for again preserving 
companies preserving experiences that you want to be there when this, thankfully, at some point is all over. Wait, I think before we should leave, though, I think we should do our thing where people say one one good thing you're doing or one lighthearted thing that you're doing to oh, survive yeah. this. I think that that's a good, a good night, a better note to end on than disenfranchisement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to end my, makes um, sense. That makes sense. My sister-in-law sent us, uh, well, my sister-in-law had or- tried to order one harmonica online, just I think to kind of mess around with it. And instead <laughs> of one, she got one box of harmonicas. So there was something like 12 Excellent. of them. And so she was sending them around to kind of friends and family and we got one. So um, my wife and I have kind of been jamming. I've been pulling out my guitar and she's been uh, wailing on the <laughs> harmonica. So we're having a, we're at the kind of, we're at the jam session stage of the quarantine, but it's been kind of fun Excellent. to uh, Is she pretty good? <laughs> mess around with that. It's, you know, it's in the key of C. So as long as you play some, you know, as long as I'm jamming on that, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> nice. That's <laughs> so. awesome. Yeah, I guess mine is that um, I, since we can't get books right now, you know, you can get everything from libraries digitally, but I'm kind of a snob about, I just really like a physical book. Um, so, you know, I've been just using what I have in my limited, you know, collection in our apartment. So I decided to reread the Harry Potter books, which I haven't read in multiple years, was, you know, they're very important to me. My dad read me the first one when I was in kindergarten, and it kind of inspired my love of reading, et cetera, et cetera. But That's awesome. I, yeah, so I started rereading them again now, and I have to say, I, I read all the time and I love to read, but I haven't had an experience so visceral in a while where, you know, every day that I've been reading them, I've found myself, you know, smiling during it or, you know, it just, it has been like lightening my soul in this way to have this, um, I don't know, this comfort food. I love that. The funny thing is I don't, I don't have the third book for some reason in any of my moves from college to apartments. I couldn't, I don't have it. So I was looking at all the libraries to try to get an ebook, like the DC ones. And also, you know, I still have my membership to the New York and Brooklyn ones. And every single ebook, every single audiobook is checked out of the third Harry Potter book right now. Which at Everyone's first got I the was, same idea. Yeah, at first I was like, oh, that stinks. And then I was like, you know what? This is so great. I'm so happy that everybody is reading these together. So that is nice. And I got a free Audible trial, so I'm fine. Nice. There you go. What about you, Josh? <laughs> I, I would say just to your point about the harmonicas, I feel like this is a a a a, a signature COVID thing. I've seen all these examples because you know you order something from Amazon and you don't see the little pair ends where it says pack of twelve. Yeah. Like I know, I know, I know that um, Millette, my wife, ordered uh, some oat milk, right? Kind of buy it in bulk, and she, I think it was what you know, she thought she was ordering. Uh, you know, two normal size whatevers, but it turned out she was ordering like 24 little bonsai <laughs> oat milks, right? So we have like a lifetime supply of, of little kind of like, you know, micro, uh, uh, micro ones. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm not thinking of, I mean, I think I have lots of, of, of things like that, but honestly, I enjoy this, right? I enjoy just seeing you guys. Um, it's hey, fun. This is the highlight and, of the week for sure. Yeah, no, I really, <laughs> yeah. it really is. I really enjoy it. I enjoy not just recording it, but I enjoy seeing you guys, right? I enjoy interacting with you guys. Um, and I obviously did when we did it in person. But when we, when we did it in person, uh, this was when 
Kate still worked from our, our New York office or still lived in New York, you know, see you guys every day, right? Just con mm -hmm. you know, just a constant. And so I really enjoy it. Um, it's, it's, it is kind of a highlight of my week. So that's my sort of <laughs> non-downer thing to, yeah. uh, to share. Oh, that's right. lovely, and I second yeah. that for sure. For for our listeners, I realize that something is probably unclear. You're just hearing us, but when we record these, we do it with a Zoom conference. So when we're doing it, we're seeing each other, and it's just it's 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 nice to see each other. It is nice. Yeah. All right, take care, guys. Talk to you next week. Yep. All right, later. Week. All right, bye. Bye.